You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Well, as the kids are making their way out, I just invite you to turn with me in your Bible to James chapter 4. And uh, that is where we'll be spending our time this morning. And uh, we just want you to have God's Word open in front of you. I, uh, I bring you no great wisdom. Um, this is all I've got, too. And so we just want to come together to study God's Word and to see its truth together. And uh, um, so, yeah, I want you to have it. Open in front of you. James chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 13 to 17. In, in many ways, um, I, I, I wish you could preach a book twice. The first time you learn a whole lot about it, and the second time through, you'd have maybe a clear perspective. Um, I think James chapter 4 um, presents really the pinnacle of this book. I didn't see it when I was studying beforehand, not so clearly. Um, verses 5 to 10 really give definition to, to what this whole book is about. Um, they call us to, uh, to submit to God, to draw near to God, to live in, in faith and repentance. It's this, this beautiful call to, to trust the Lord, to call to salvation. Um, but to put even a, a finer point on it, um, I think we could go so far as to say verse 6 is that kind of distilled center. The little pile of rocks at the top of the mountain peak, if you will. Um, specifically, that phrase, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's it. I, I think in some ways you could say the whole, the whole letter, the whole book of James is, is like an in-depth sermon unpacking that verse. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Last week we, we looked at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. James uh, unpacks what that pride looks like in the way that we speak, when we, when we cut others down, when we speak condemning of others, when we speak in ways that are judgmentally attacking others. And, and he shows that how kind of cutting others down with our words is, is actually an expression of pride. You're putting yourself above that brother. You're putting yourself above the law of God. And actually, you're putting yourself above God. And so God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, if harsh words and condemning speech and judgmentalism are, are natural to you, if that's kind of the world that you live in, that's how you operate from your heart, that, that may well indicate a, a heart that is ruled by pride. To be blunt, a, a heart that is, that is not compatible with true faith, but rather is harboring the kind of pride for which the fire of hell is reserved. It's a terrifying thought. So James puts this out in front of us. This is what pride and humility look like. Pride shows its ugly head in the way that we speak to one another. Then he moves from this uh, hurtful speech in verses 11 and 12 uh, into arrogant speech in verses 13 and 17. 
So follow along with me as I, as I read, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. James says, starting verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you, Lord, that we can come together um, to see your truth and to, um, to seek what you have called us to see and to be. Lord, would you be at work in us this morning? Lord, I pray that as I um, unpack this verse and try to uh, explain what you have written, God, that, that my explanation would be helpful, that my words would be clear, but most importantly, Father, that they would be true to your word that it would not be my wisdom in any way, but your truth. And God, I pray for our hearts, our often pride-filled, arrogant hearts. Lord, we invite your spirit to convict us, painful as it may be, that you might draw us to repentance, that you might draw us to faith, that you might draw us to a deeper, richer understanding of the wonder of your gospel, the beauty of the cross. God, that we might come in humility and that we might live lives worthy of this gospel to which we have been called. God, would you do your glorious work in us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see as we get into this passage uh, is the, the folly of prideful planning. The folly of prideful planning. James begins with these sharp words. He's almost, I think it is, it's rude. Come now, listen up, pay attention. Um, these are just kind of this, this sharp attention getting. And who is he addressing? Uh, those who make these kinds of, of confident plans, right? They, they, they make no recognition of the Lord's will. Um, look at how specific and how confident these words are. They've mapped everything out in detail. They've planned when they're going to go. You who say today or tomorrow. They've planned out where they're going to go. They're going to go to such and such a town. They've planned out how long they're going to stay there. We're going to go there. We're going to stay a year. And they've planned out what they're going to do when they get there. We're going to trade and do business. And, And then on top of that, they've even planned that it will succeed. We're going to make a profit. This is how it's going to go. This will be my life. And it's not only detailed, it's confident. We will do this. We will do that. This is what is going to happen. Now, much of this is pretty normal. right? It's to be expected. He's he's describing in many ways just the the typical itinerary of a businessman in his day. They they would identify a growing hub or a significant city where their trade or their... um, Particular merchandise would be valuable, and, and they would go there and stay for a season and, and do business. 
And because of that, this passage at times has been taken the wrong way. And uh, some have focused on the last piece there. Um, they're, they're going to make a profit. You see, profit is evil. Christians shouldn't make profit. Capitalism, business ventures, that's, that's not appropriate for a follower of Christ. Christians should be poor. Well, Paul elsewhere says whoever doesn't work shouldn't eat. The person who doesn't provide for his family has denied the faith is worse than an unbeliever. Um, Paul himself worked hard as a tent maker, providing for his own ministry. I, I don't think that's it. I don't think the rest of Scripture backs that up. Others have taken it to say, well, see, Christians shouldn't plan ahead. You shouldn't make plans. Just don't do it at all. Proverbs 15.22 is one example. Um, Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Solomon's encouraging us not only to make plans, but to make good plans, plans that, that will succeed. Jesus talks about the, the wise man who, who doesn't build a tower or go to war unless he sat down and made the calculations, if he's going to be able to finish it, if he's going to be able to afford it. No, the, the Bible is not against making money. It's not against planning ahead. The, the problem is how these people are operating and, and, and it's not so much what is said as what is not said, right? In all their detail and all their confident planning, there's no mention of the Lord here. There's no consideration of, no submission to the sovereignty of God and, and what He is doing and what He has planned. And, and that's specifically pointed out uh, down into verse 16. And James says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. That's the problem. It's their arrogant heart that is boastfully making these plans. They're boasting the things that they're going to accomplish. Again, giving no recognition, no room for the fact that, that actually the Lord is over all of this. These people are living as practical atheists. They, they're, they're part of the church. James is writing this letter to the church. They, they say they believe in God, but... But that doesn't translate into the way they actually live. It doesn't actually transform um, the way that they think and plan and, and make decisions. And so remember how James is writing this letter. He's giving these tests of authentic faith. What does true saving faith look like? And this is one of those tests. Do you truly have saving faith? Or do you just give God lip service? You come to church on Sunday... You give God his due one, one day a week, um, but the rest is mine, right? Monday through Saturday, that's about me doing my business thing, building my career, strengthening my financial kingdom, making and fulfilling my plans, seeking my priorities. God, Sunday's yours. Stay in your lane, right? The rest of the week is mine. And, and so, again, there's nothing wrong with making a profit, even doing very well financially. But, but these people, that's their entire goal. That's their life, is, is seeking after these worldly goals. They're not submitted to God. They're not focused on what He has called them to do or to be. They're, they're not living in the fear of the Lord, submitting to Him day by day, seeking His kingdom, His glory. Um, they're just using the Lord. They just give Him lip service as they pursue their own worldly passions. In this case, it's money, um, could just as easily be any number of things. Prestige, comfort, pleasure. And they, 
arrogantly plan and talk as if this is under their control. I think we've all met this guy, right? I mean, he is fresh out of business school with the nice new suit that his parents bought him. He's clean cut, bulletproof hair, and he loves the question, what's your five-year plan? Like he's ready for it. He wants everybody to know. Um, Beth and I met a a couple uh, a few years ago. They had started out thinking maybe they would go into ministry together and uh, until their plans changed when they jumped on this kind of multi-level marketing company and uh, and they got super excited about that. And uh, with with straight face and unswerving confidence, um, he just explained that, that their life plan um, was to be the people who can just write the check. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to be. Um, you, you're going on a missions trip? We'll cover it. You know, you need special offerings or some equipment in the church? We got it. You know, you're building a church building. We'll, we'll make up the difference. Without any hint of irony or the slightest sense of uncertainty, um, this 20-year-old couple just explained their, their new life plan was to be absurdly wealthy. Um, good, good for you. Um, and again, nothing wrong with being wealthy. Certainly nothing wrong with being generous. That does appear to be God's plan for some. But, but that kind of unfounded arrogance and, and confidence just leaves no room for the sovereignty of God. And in fact, it leaves God out of the equation altogether. And it's, and it's this kind of thinking, not limited to the pursuit of money, um, it, it works its way into all that we do without even thinking about it. The young man or woman confidently says, right, I'm going to find me the right husband, the right wife. I have my very modest list of 150 things that they need to, to meet these expectations. Um, and and they, they plan to never have a fight or quarrel with their perfect spouse. The newly married couple declares, we're going to have four children. We're going to have one every two years, and uh, we'll be done having kids by 28. Kids will be out of the house by 50. That's our plan. The young mother decides she's going to raise her kids, send them to the best Christian school, or better yet, homeschool, and and she's going to feed them home-cooked, farm-to-table, organic, non-GMO, free-range meals, and they're going to read the Bible every morning, they're going to read classic literature every night, and they're going to grow up and trust God and go to college and get good jobs and marry good spouses and have good grandkids. That's the plan. I can control this. I will do A, B, C, and D, and it will go the way I want. The husband, meanwhile... Diligently putting away 15% of his monthly income, counting down the days to exactly 65, and we're going to retire, and we're going to go on this cruise, and we're going to spend the summer with grandkids and the, and the winters in Florida, and, and it's going to be great. Again, nothing evil about any of those plans in and of themselves, right? But have they left room for the Lord in that? Have you understood that God is sovereign and you're not? We've just been boasting in our own arrogance, planning out life uh, as if we were God, as if we were in control. As long as I do A, B, and C, then, then D will certainly follow. As long as I put in all the right ingredients, I know exactly what this is going to produce. Until all of a sudden, those plans get derailed, right? Mr. or Mrs. Wright never does walk through those church doors. Or that 
Mr. or Mrs. Wright that you did find and marry turns out to be a sinner. Who would have seen that coming? Shock. And it's hard. And you're squabbling and fighting and and your marriage becomes a, a point of tension. A source of strife. Infertility or miscarriages. Throw your family planning out the window. Your perfectly raised non-GMO daughter comes home pregnant. The diagnosis of cancer or some debilitating disease keeps your retirement dreams as just that, dreams that will never be fulfilled. Then what? Sadly, in the church, we, we often make God part of our arrogant planning. I think as long as, as long as I go to church every Sunday and I give my 10% and I pray before every meal, um, then God is obligated to fulfill my plans. These plans that I made without involving him. It's as if God were some kind of cosmic vending machine. I put in my money. I pushed H3. Why did I get raisins and not a chocolate bar? That's not right. That's not what I ordered, God. I did all these things for you. You you owe me the final product. It's folly. It's folly of our prideful planning, our arrogant boasting as if we were God. And James confronts that head on. Listen up. Pay attention. All such boasting is evil. Don't do it. Watch for that. Guard against that. And then he pulls back the curtain, verse 14. And he forces us to take a look at the reality of this. And he, he shows us the, the frailty of life. The frailty of life. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We get so caught up in our arrogant planning. What are those things in your life that, that, you've, that you've just set your sights on? This is what is important to me. This is what's valuable to me. That's where I'm going. And James says, what is your life? You're a mist. He just cuts that off at the knees. You don't know what even tomorrow will bring. You're, you're planning for years down the road, but, but the very next day is a mystery. And he uses this common biblical metaphor, your life is a mist, it's a vapor. Now as Canadians, in the middle of this nice little cold snap, um, we think about walk outside, there's the, there's the mist. You breathe out and there's this cloud in front of you and then it's gone. That's not a bad illustration. Um, Although minus 35 was very rare in Israel. Um, more likely, um, James is thinking about the mist that would roll in off of the, the cold Mediterranean air as it hit into the arid climate. It's interesting. Um, Beth and I had a chance years ago um, to hike along the Lost Coast Trail. This beautiful uh, little oceanside trail just, uh, just north of San Francisco. And uh, there's a framed picture in my office of me along this trail, and, and you just, it's all fogged right in. It's thick as can be, um, that, that famous San Francisco fog. Uh, in the picture and, and in the moment, um, when the fog is there, it's just, it's all-encompassing. You, you can't see past it. You can't see anywhere. And, and for us as visitors there, I mean, you're starting to think, are we going to be able to find our way 
home? Are we going to get lost in this? But, but what you can't see in the picture um, is that just seconds, literally seconds after it was taken, the most gentle breeze came in and it was gone. Gone, without a trace, clear as day. And I hate to break it to you, but that's your life. That's us. All right, right now, we're, we're in the thick of it. It feels like everything. You, you can't see past it. This is, this is what's all around us. Um, this life is of the greatest importance. But the smallest breath of wind blows, and, and you're gone. That's it. Our life is done. James already used a similar illustration back in uh, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He's telling the rich they ought to boast in their humble position, recognize their weakness. He says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be making your great life plans and putting together A, B, C, and D. You're going to be giving it 100% of your focus, your, your eyes on the prize, you're grinding, you're hustling, you got everything going, and all of a sudden, points B and C just come to an end. You never get to point D. It doesn't happen. It's over. In the midst of your pursuit, it's gone. Even what? 50 years later, you're, you're lucky if a handful of family descendants know your name. Jesus tells this tragic story, Luke 12. A story about a guy who, who made it. He succeeded. He gets to that goal and it means nothing. Jesus told a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. What a, what a problem to have. I don't have anywhere to keep all of my money. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He made it. This is it. Like this guy invested on the ground floor of Apple, and his stock went up 10,000%, and now he's, he's sitting on more money than he could ever spend. He's, he's chilling out. He's going to Fiji and just sipping Mai Tais or whatever they serve in Fiji. I hope someday to find out. Um, he's independently wealthy. And God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He's so focused on this life and his plans and now it's gone. Whose will they be? Commentator named Kistemacher says this, Pride closes a man's eyes to reality so that he does not see the ridiculousness of his deeds. Man makes plans and talks as if he were the master of his life and God does not exist, it is utter foolishness. Our pride is so completely unfounded. Our lives are so frail, so small, so short, so little in consequence. 
We have this illustration, or this, this illusion of control, of, of power and importance, and it is just an illusion. Don't let this life be your focus. Don't, don't set your heart in making these great plans of the things that you'll accomplish in a, in a worldly sense. How your life is going to go and the things you're going to do here. Don't let worldly thinking and boasting and arrogance and the focus on, on wealth and worldly treasure fill your view. Thinking the, the good life here, that's what I'm after. Job 14.1 says, Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. That's it. Few of days, full of trouble. That's what we ought to expect. Don't, don't miss what this looks like from the opposite perspective. There are those who plan and, and organize with great confidence and expectation looking forward. But it's the same pride, it's the same arrogance seen in the person um, who is looking back and who is crushed and broken and bitter and angry when all of their plans fell apart. The things that they had hoped for never came to pass. And rather than looking forward in arrogance, they're now looking back in anger. It's the same heart. Both foolishly overlooked the frailty of life. Both signs of pride and remember what lies beneath this. Remember where James started this conversation. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so James not only uncovers the folly of pride and forces us to stare straight into the face of the, the frailty of our own lives, then he shows us the fruit of humility. Then, then he shows us how we ought to live, what we should be like. This is what ought to be produced by the humility in us, verses 15 to 17. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the life of humility. This is what we're called to. This is the life that, that God sees uh, that, that, that sees God for who he is. And it sees ourselves in, in proper context and it responds correctly. Two parts to this verse. Um, verse 15, or this, this passage, verse 15 and verse 17 are kind of two separate pieces. Verse 15 calls us to recognize God's hidden will. Recognize God's hidden will. James says, instead of your confident planning and your arrogant boasting, you need to recognize God's hidden will. Now, there's an interesting conversation to be had here, and, and, and it really needs some clarification. Um, we so often talk about God's will, and finding God's will. And, and uh, am I in the center of God's will? And I don't want to move forward until I know God's will. I don't want to step out of God's will. And we pray, God, just show me your will. But the idea of God's will maybe isn't quite so simple as we make it out to be. Um, there's some complexity here. There's some, some different dimensions, some, some layers to God's will that we need to understand. When we use the phrase God's will, there, there could be a number of things that we're talking about. And I think we often get them reversed. We, we treat them improperly. 
we ask and, and try to know God's will in a sense that God never intended for us to know. A way that is frankly none of your business. The theological term here uh, for this aspect of God's will is, is his hidden will or uh, sometimes called his decretive will. This is the will of God's decree. What he has planned in history past will happen. Um, we'll stick with the, the term hidden will. I think that helps us this morning as we think through this. So God's hidden will is his plan from eternity past. It's what he has willed to take place. And, and God's hidden will is pervasive and unchanging. It's over all things and it will happen. He has decreed it and it will be. So Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God, God stakes his godhood on this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So God declares the end from the beginning and the implication is uh, everything in between. I have decreed what will happen from the very beginning until the final end. Um, that's God's hidden will. That's what Paul's talking about, Ephesians 111. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's a controversial statement, John. Yes, it is. But it's not mine. It's Bible. This is what Paul says. Not only has God ordained, predestined who would be saved, but he has worked all things according to the counsel of his will. Matthew 10, 29 to 30, Jesus says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God's will encompasses everything. His plan is, is all-inclusive. Think about that. Think about all of the birds in the forests uh, across Canada, the Amazon, Asia, Africa, the world. Not one bird falls to the ground apart from God's will. And the very hairs on your head are numbered. Now, for some of us, that number is getting fewer. Um, others, there are numerous. The hairs are numbered. And, and notice that's, that's, that's a verb there. God numbers them. This is not talking just about what he knows, but what he does. He has given them their place. Proverbs 16 uh, has just a bunch of statements about this, the hidden will of God. Verse 33, um, he says, the lot is cast into the lap. He's talking about the most random, inconsequential thing. The dice is thrown and the Lord decides its every decision. Verse 9, um, very much parallel to what James is talking about. The heart of a man plans his ways. You, you make all your great plans and you figure out where we're going to go and what we're going to do. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's over it. That's what James is talking about. That's what uh, humility recognizes. That I can make all the plans in the world. I can do everything in my power to make my will happen to go this way and do these things. In the end, God's will will be carried out. His will wins. He has a plan and it'll happen. 
We should live in constant recognition of God's hidden will. Look how dependent James's example then is. So far the opposite of this, of the prideful planning. He says this, we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Just pause there. Like this guy doesn't just recognize that, that my, my business plans for next year depend on the will of the Lord. But he says, if the Lord wills, I'll wake up tomorrow morning. I'll make these plans. If God wills, I'll get another breath. His, whole, his very life is dependent on God. He still humbly says, we, we hope to do this or that. Still making plans. This isn't, this isn't fatalism. It's not don't do anything because God's will is going to happen anyway. It's no make your plans, go about your life, recognizing with humility that God is over. This, this open hand that God is sovereign and not me. That I'll make my plans and I'll do my best and, and God is running the show. And I've been to his will. Recognizing that hidden will. Now I want you to notice something um, fairly obvious here. It's, it's right in the name. This is one of those really helpful theological terms. Um, his hidden will is hidden, right? He doesn't typically tell us. This is not typically information that we're privy to. We don't know the details of God's plan. We don't know if we're going to get sick or if we're going to get in a car accident or win the lottery. We, we don't know the details of God's plan, and it's not healthy for us. To be obsessed with trying to find out, God, what's your hidden will before it happens? And on top of that, every purpose of the Lord will stand. He does work all things according to the counsel of his will. He's not trying to, right? As, as Yoda would say, do or do not, there is no try that's God. He doesn't try to do anything. He does or does not. He, he accomplishes what he sets out to do. He's not attempting to fulfill his will. It will happen. And that means in the sense of God's hidden will, his will of decree, yes, you are in the middle of God's will. You are right where he wants you to be. Right now, he has brought you to this place. That might be hard to fathom. Maybe that includes some pain and some suffering. God's not out of control. Those things didn't happen to you and God was wringing his hands, wondering, how do I deal with this? What's next? What do we do now? No, God was at work. God has been working out his will to this point. And he works all things for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. And so we, you, you are in God's will. Our response to God's hidden will is just to humbly recognize that, to recognize that it exists, to admit that all of our plans are subject to his, that he is ultimate and we are not. But that's not our only job, right? Once we've recognized his hidden will, then we need to submit to his revealed will. There's another sense of God's will that we need to address. And, and this is uh, the difference between verse 15 um, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll go and do this or do that. Verse 17, however, says, 
Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Whereas God's hidden will refers to his decrees, his, his plan for all things. God's revealed will speaks of what he has told us. Not so much about what will be in the future, but rather what he commands. His will for how we ought to live. Um, this is also called often his preceptive wills. It's his precepts, his commands to us. So the, the Ten Commandments is an expression of the will of God. Do these things. Live this way and, and, and we are to submit and to obey. And you can see these two wills, they show up side by side. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. It's not for you. The secret things are His. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. What kind of things has He revealed and what do we do with it? That we may do all the words of the law. God has revealed to us His will and His law. He says, this is how you ought to live. Moses is saying, stop trying to figure out God's hidden will. That's His. And it's hidden. The secret things are for God. But look at the things that are revealed. Put your attention there. Focus on what he's commanded of us and obey. When we're looking at God's will and we're asking God, what's your will? Um, This is what we ought to be concerned about. God, what have you commanded me to do? And again, good news. it's, It's right in the name once again. It's his revealed will. It's been revealed. It's been given to us. We have it right here. And so... This must be so frustrating. It would be frustrating if, if you were God, if I were God. So thankful I'm not. But think about this as a, like the relationship between a father and his eight-year-old son. The father tells the son, I have, a, I have a plan for today. I've got everything booked and, and mapped out and it's paid for in advance. It's going to be this great, fantastic day, you and me. But it's a secret. I'm not going to tell you. So Go and get dressed, make your bed, have your breakfast, and then we'll go. And the father goes and takes a shower, and he comes back in 20 minutes, and the kid hasn't done a thing. He's sitting in the exact same spot. And he says, Dad, what are we going to do today? Dad, what's your plan for today? What does the dad say? Well, that's not for you to know. I told you it was a secret. Now go and do what I asked you to do. That wasn't a secret. I gave you these commands. Yeah, but Dad, I really, really want to know. Do you trust me? Yeah? Then go do it. Go do the things that I've asked. Let me take care of the secrets that I've planned. We spend so much time asking God to to reveal his hidden will to us when what we should be doing is giving ourselves to doing what he's already revealed, what he's already commanded of us. We fret about his hidden will. Why am I here and where is this going? And we forget about his revealed will. And what we should be doing is is presuming his hidden will. I know God is in control. He's brought me here for a purpose and pursuing his revealed will. How can I walk in obedience? How can I grow in holiness through this? So you want to know God's will for your life? Here it is. 1 Thessalonians 4, the most simple and beautiful 
display of God's will. For this is the will of God, clear as that, your sanctification, that you be holy. That's what God wills for you. You want to know God's will? It's your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger of all in these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for the Lord has not called us to impurity but to holiness. God's will is holiness in your life. That's what he's called us to. And James points that out here, that it's not just avoiding what we're commanded to avoid, but also doing the things that we're commanded to do. It's an active obedience, seeking out, where do I go next? How do I honor you? How do I obey God? This should be what we're focused on, not, not pridefully making these, these confident plans and searching and prying to figure out God's hidden will, but humbly spending ourselves pursuing obedience to what he's revealed to us. That's where true joy, that's where fulfillment is found. That's what it means to store up treasure in heaven rather than on earth, to be rich toward the Lord. The prideful man is, is arrogantly running after worldly profit. That's his focus. It's, it's worldly gain. David says this about God's revealed will, about God's commands. Psalm 19.10, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of a honeycomb. You want to know how to move forward, how to follow God, what his plan is for you? Well, that's... That's what David is talking about over in Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Look at the revealed will of God and his commands for you and let that light the way forward. Is it going to answer every specific question? No. But that's what we're accountable to. Open your Bible. Read it. Submit yourself to it. So you're praying God's will with your Bible closed, you're missing it, right? If you're asking for, for God's will without reading God's word, you don't understand God's way. And so you say, that's, that's fine. I get that. I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll read. I'll try to obey. But, but I need to know God's will for this specific situation, right? I need to know. Should I go to college or go into the trades? Should I, should I marry Jane or marry Sue? Should I take this job offer or should I stay where I am? I, I got to know how to move forward. And the Bible doesn't tell me. Well, sometimes it does. Sometimes the answer is in obeying the commands that he's already given. Another familiar passage. Proverbs 3, 5, and 7. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So trust the Lord. Acknowledge him as your master, your Lord. Turn away from evil. And, and notice it says um, he'll tell you exactly what to do, right? No. No, it says he will make your path straight. He will take care of it. If you're honoring the Lord, if you're diligently, passionately seeking holiness and obedience in every part of your life, um, some of those questions will answer themselves. The new job offer has me working every Sunday. I won't be able to gather with the church. I'm going to pass. 
Jane's a nice girl, but she's not a believer. Option is off the table. Some of those questions are going to be answered by God's revealed will. Obedience to God will direct the way that we go. Other questions where neither option is sin. There's no clear moral right or wrong or teaching of Scripture. Here's this beautiful, freeing truth. Just pick one. Do what you want. Pick one and feel good about it. Seek the Lord. Acknowledge His sovereignty. Pray for wisdom. Seek advice and godly counsel and humbly listen to them. And if both options are equal and there's no sin in either way, just stop freaking out and go. He'll make your plan straight. He'll guide your steps. You're not going to derail the plan of God because you chose A instead of B. He's bigger than that. Psalm 37, 4. There's a reason these verses are familiar to us, and I think they're so familiar that we lose the, the practical value in them. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. I, I don't think that means if you, that, that God is just going to give you whatever your heart desires. Um, if that's a Ferrari, um, you, might, you might be out of luck. But as you delight in Him, as your heart desires Him, He will put godly desires in you and fulfill those desires. Here's how the great St. Augustine put it. Love God and do what you please. It's just that simple. Love God and do what you please. Set your heart on Him. Focus your life on serving and obeying Him and, and, and go for it. A life orientation of your, of your heart focused around loving the Lord, if that's your overarching controlling desire, then, then do what you please. Don't be frozen trying to find God's hidden will before you move forward. Run hard after his revealed will and then just live in the freedom and joy knowing that, that God will give you the right desires that he will make your path straight. But it all comes back to this, doesn't it? God opposes the proud. And gives grace to the humble. If we're pridefully making plans about our life for our own worldly goals with this confidence. And we do it like we're in control of everything. And according to our own worldly goals and making money and promoting self. Yeah, God opposes that. He'll crush that. Ultimately, uh, in judgment. But the fruit of humility... The evidence of a humble heart is what we've seen working out in these last couple of verses. Understanding the frailty of life. Recognizing the, the ultimate will of God and, and, and seeking after His revealed will. We're trusting that, that He has ordered our future and we're pursuing holiness. Trusting that the Lord is able and faithful to direct our steps. That's humility. That's what God honors. Church, let us not arrogantly say, this is what I'm going to do. This is where my life is going, and I'm going to do A, B, and C, and D will certainly follow. Let us humbly devote ourselves to walking obediently to the Lord, trusting in His ultimate plan. Be humble before Him. And guess what? Every one of us is guilty of this, right? Every one of us is guilty of this prideful, planning. 
We've, we've grabbed the steering wheels of our lives in one way or another and said, Lord, this is mine. You can have that part of life, but I must have this. I must be in control here. We make our plans and we say, I will carry out my will. And that self-determined, self-sufficient, self-focused pride is, is right at the heart of our human condition. It's the center of our sinful, corrupt hearts. And, and James is saying, if anyone knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, he sins. If you're not seeking after the Lord's will as you know you ought to, um, we're condemned. Every one of us ought to put up our hand and say, that's me. I'm that guy that keeps grabbing the wheel. I've done that. That defines large swaths of my life. And here's the real hope. Here's the, the beauty of the reality that though God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble, right? That though we deserve God's wrath for our pride, he welcomes us, he invites us to lay down that burden of control, surrender it to him, to trust in his goodness and his sovereign plan. And as helpless sinners pleading guilty, we, we come to the cross. We lay our sin bare before him and receive forgiveness and grace purchased there. In Christ, we find the hope, the confidence that whatever lies ahead, whatever trials are there, that they're part of God's will. They're part of his good plan. And as long as we're pursuing holiness and pursuing obedience, he is faithful. He'll direct our steps. He'll make our paths straight. I invite the worship team to come as we celebrate communion together. As we look to the cross, we know we have confidence that God is for us. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you ever doubt God's goodness? Do you ever find yourself in that place? It's hard to think about maybe this is God's will for me. He gave up his own son for us. We can have confidence that he will give us every good thing along with that.